It's my privilege this morning to be able to introduce our chapel speaker. About 15 years ago, I was starting my teaching role here at Crown, and a couple of students came into one of my, the first classes I taught, one of the Old Testament history sections, and they had the baseball caps on, and they were sitting down kind of right near the front on the aisle, and I thought, wow, these guys might be a huge distraction, right? Maybe even annoying. I wasn't sure where they were going. One of them had the cap on forward, one backward. And I soon come to enjoy them because at least they had the same name, and I could remember one name in class and had two students there. So that was good. Two Justins sitting right on the aisle. But as the semester went on, it became apparent that uh, not only were these guys uh, sitting near the front on the aisle, but uh, they weren't sleeping under those caps. They were paying attention. They had answers when I had questions. And in fact, they had questions for me during this time. They were reading. They were enjoying this. And that was the start of my experience with Professor Winsenberg. As he got along in his years here at Crown, he became a TA for Dr. Myers, and Dr. Myers mentored him. And by the time he got to his senior thesis and presented that to the faculty and students in our department, I knew there was substance in this young man. As he went on for his master's degree, he was nearby, so he kept coming around Crown, hanging out with other friends and playing noon ball, and I'd see him from time to time. And as soon as he finished that master's degree, he started contacting me saying, hey, I'd like to teach. And for the past uh, six or eight years, he's been here teaching as an adjunct professor. And as Dr. Ginolis was preparing to retire, Justin contacted me again and said, I'd really like to apply for that position. Hadn't finished his PhD yet, hadn't had any full-time experience, and we had over 20 applicants from across the country with all kinds of credentials. During that process, Justin just rose to the top. We knew he was the next person to begin his career here and be a long-term faculty member for us. As he's completing his PhD at London School of Theology, he's here teaching with us now full-time, and it's my privilege to introduce to you Professor Winsenberg. Thanks, Dean, for those kind words. It really is humbling here being in front of you today. And uh, what Dean didn't mention is that he forced us to memorize a whole outline of the Gospel of John in that class, which at the time was New Testament history that you taught. Never forgive you for it. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, to this day in my Gospel of John class, I never require memorizing a whole line, outline of the Gospel of John. In fact, I'm not sure even in teaching a class that I could off the top of my head produce an outline of the whole Gospel uh, so, yeah, it, it was a little tricky, but... So I yeah, yeah. No, no, you didn't fail. No, you're good. <laughs> well, let me say, uh, what I originally wanted to do this morning was to take you to a passage at the end of the book of Revelation and to exegete it for you. And I know some of you might like that, but I thought I might do something a little bit different, actually. I thought I might uh, do something that might be a little more relevant to the entire student body here. And I found that the more that I looked into the book of Revelation, the more I felt this sense like I needed to actually uh, provide a little bit of context, tell you a little bit about what it is and what it's doing, and particularly tell you a little bit about why it's spoken to its context. I found myself drawn also to feeling the need to draw out for you the implications that Revelation has for you. Some of you, I think, have the feeling like, unless I do that, unless I draw out those implications, 
you may not at all be motivated to engage with what appears to be seemingly bizarre language in the book. Now my hunch is, and I hope that I'm wrong, that the younger generation, you guys, we might call you the post-left-behind generation, has in some ways ignored the book of Revelation altogether. Now there are those who are saying you're actually ignoring the Bible altogether, which may well be true, but that's a different issue. But even those of you who aren't ignoring the Bible altogether, you may in fact be ignoring the book of Revelation, and you may not have paid much attention to it at all. And I think the reason why is because uh, unlike some of those within your parents' and your grandparents' generation, if you venture into the book of Revelation, you probably don't do so with this sense of illusions of certainty based off of timelines and newspaper headlines. Instead, you probably find yourself a little bit disoriented. In fact, it might be utter disorientation that you sense when you encounter a book that sounds more to you like a chaotic fantasy novel than it does the scriptures. I find it interesting that the title for Revelation comes from a Greek word that really means a revealing, which is in some ways quite the opposite sentiment than what most of us have, which is that revelation is anything but revealing. It's in fact quite concealing. And we often think, you know, why don't you just kind of come out and say it in a way that makes some sense to us? So you might find yourself in agreement with that commentator that called revelation uh, the joker in the deck of biblical texts. And we might feel that way. We might feel like it's a little bit out of place or even useless at times. So my goal here today isn't really to, to go into a particular passage and stretch out all the details, while that might be very valuable. Uh, my goal today instead is to convince you why your generation needs the book of Revelation. And then maybe at a later time we can revisit some of these passages and dig into it a little bit more depth. So my contention here today to you is that Revelation has a unique contribution towards addressing concerns that are present within your generation. But we have to be careful. What I don't mean here is that Revelation directly is addressing current events within our culture, as some former interpreters really have, have set it out to say. Instead, what I mean to point to is that its themes and its purpose, and really the imaginative portraits that it provides, uh, gives us sort of a unique opportunity, a, a unique opportunity to sort of uh, actualize it within our own context. So my talk, the title for today, why the next generation needs the book of Revelation. And I only have two points that I'm going to make. There's many more that we could talk about. My two points that I'm going to address, though, are really coming from a place of my perception of the state of affairs within our own culture, as well as my understanding of the book of Revelation. And I want to say at the outset, I do so humbly. I'm not an expert on our culture. And I acknowledge that no book like Revelation can humble and at times terrify the biblical interpreter in such a way as it does. Scholars that are far better than I have been baffled by its contents, and, and rightly so. So what I offer today is, is hopefully helpful suggestions, not definitive ones that are kind of a once and for all thing here. And I know that there are several of my colleagues here in, my, in our midst who would do a, a very great job uh, also addressing some of the content here, but maybe in a little different take and different manner. So keep that in mind. What I'm saying here today may not transfer over very easily into another context. I really want to kind of focus in on, on us a little bit, or at least your generation, my perception of it. So why does your generation need the book of Revelation? Well, my first point, the book of Revelation, I think, yields unique potential 
for artistic expressions of the scriptures, but so long as we do it with an informed imagination. Now, we see new applications, I think, of art forms emerging within our culture all the time with far wider-ranging possibilities than what existed in previous generations. I think of advances in filmmaking, advances in visual arts, video games, photography. Uh, I specifically think of the new releases of the Blu-rays of the original Star Wars movies. And George Lucas decided in there and was pretty adamant that these editions would include the new scenes that he added, the new Jabba the Hutt scenes, the new singing scene that he added, I think it was in the early 2000s or so. And his reason for saying so is he, he admitted that he has to include them because it's really what he would have done had the technology been available to him. Well, well the technology is available now. We're seeing the emergence of new visual uh, technology, new, new elements of storytelling. I think of the reemergence of the comic book. Uh, now, we call them uh, something different now. We call them graphic novels, and some of them have been made into films like the one about the 300 Spartans. I think of how television's being rethought in light of Netflix and Amazon Prime. And many of you probably binge watch TV now, which maybe was a little bit of a foreign concept for some. I think of painters and people who can draw, not myself, but how we have digital tools sort of at our, at our hands here. I mean, I have on my phone an application where I can pull out my stylus for my phone and draw. Now, it's not going to be a very good drawing, but interesting technological advances in ways that could maybe increase some of the storytelling aspects within our culture. I even think of musicians and composers, how you can record songs on your phone or on your laptop, upload them onto YouTube, and let the whole world listen to them if you want. And we could go on and on, you know, writers and poets. I don't want to leave anybody out here, but it's just a generalization in some ways. So my claim here, I think, is that new possibilities actually exist in communicating the scriptures through creative mediums, through things that would really point to the fact that Revelation, I think, has possibilities for this sort of thing in ways that other books of the Bible maybe don't. But I think Christian artists need to be informed in their imagination when doing so, and I'll talk a little more about that here in a second. I also think it's true, though, that Christian artists may be able to actually communicate the scriptures to us uh, in provocative ways that even the best exegetes cannot do because most of the people in my area are trained in academic writing and exposition. Not that that's bad, but I really do think that artists have a unique way that they can express the scriptures to us as the church. So I think that you as a new generation in many ways have some imaginative possibilities at your fingertips that maybe weren't there in the past, and so you can explore the gospel through the book of Revelation in new creative ways. Now, Revelation itself actually engages multiple genres, and we'll talk a little bit about that, what we mean here, but it does so in order to provide, I think, some vivid and sometimes strikingly and sometimes even shocking images and content. It does so in a way that Romans certainly does not. Now, some of you last night at the uh, Christmas at Crown concert sang a hymn, uh, Still, 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 it's called and you brought me into a far more intimate encounter with Christ and his humanity than can the best commentary on the Gospel of John that talks about the word become flesh. There was something unique about the way you sang that song. I think about the, the words 
The child's eyes softly close, and Mary, breathless, draws him, weeping, to her heart made pure for keeping. Still, 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 his bright eyes softly close. I mean, there we have Emmanuel weeping against his mother's chest like any other baby. I mean, and this doesn't even do justice to it. I mean, if you hear the, the actual arrangement, it, it's a haunting, haunting lullaby. And there's something that that conveys, and doesn't just convey, but actually brings me into encounter with Christ and his humanity in a way that no commentary can do. Very powerful. I think a case can be made that Revelation actually yields even more strongly to its appropriation in imaginative ways within our cultural environment. One commentator calls Revelation scripture in high definition. That resonates, I think, with our culture a bit. It's not subtle. It pops out at us. It comes kind of off the page. It comes out of the box in some ways. And it, in some ways, actually helps us to see things more clearly than what we could do if it were given to us or conveyed in a less provocative manner. Another way that I think that Revelation can be considered Scripture in high definition is that it actually comes to us in ways that aren't characteristic of any one given genre. If you want to turn to Revelation, you can. We're not going to spend any significant time in any one place, but you can go to the beginning of the book. Because if you go to the first three chapters, you'll find that it sounds familiar. It sounds quite a bit like just your average epistle sent to several churches throughout the Roman Empire. And so we feel a little comfortable with it. When you get to chapter 4, though, it wigs out. Totally wigs out. The door opens in heaven, and then we get visionary language and images, some that are really, really difficult to figure out what in the world is going on, and it ventures quite a bit from what we perceive to be just a common letter. So it's letter, but it's not. We also see narrative aspects and storied aspects, but the minute that you start reading it, you realize this is nothing at all like what you get in the Gospels or like what you get in Acts. So narrative doesn't quite encompass it entirely. And of course, we have to admit there are prophetic aspects as well, but we need to be careful. In fact, if you go up to the library and you look up apocalyptic literature, you go to the section with apocalyptic, you'll find that actually most of those books talk about Revelation as prophecy in their right. But why we have to be careful is because we cannot approach Revelation with a very narrow and limited view of biblical prophecy that sees it as just foretelling the future. I'm pretty sure that when Paul places the gift of prophecy in some ways over the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he's not encouraging the church to foretell the future. Foretelling the future is one aspect of biblical prophecy, but it doesn't encompass the entirety of it. And so to label our revelation as prophecy is right, but we need to do so, I think, even cautiously, knowing that it encompasses much more than just telling us the future. So the hodgepodge that we get here of, of genres really is what makes some of its imagery so, so potent. Uh, we don't get anywhere near this sort of saturated imagery in any one given book in all of the New Testament. So Revelation is unique, and I think it provides for us uh, striking imagery for a generation like yours and mine too that are saturated in visual and imaginative images all the time. But we need to do so with an informed imagination. Well, what do I mean by that? We need to be very careful of taking an uninformed appropriation of the book and putting it into our context. That can be quite dangerous, and we've seen some of the dangers of that in the past. Instead, we need to fully appreciate 
how to approach it from an informed perspective. And I really only want to say one thing about this today. I wish I had more time, but I don't. How do we approach Revelation with an informed perspective? And this isn't just for Christian artists. I do think if you're going to, to do what's necessary to convey Revelation to us in ways that go beyond the traditional uh, exegetes methods, you need an informed imagination. But anybody who approaches Revelation needs an informed imagination. So the one comment that I'll make about that is that in order to have an informed outlook, approach, imagination towards Revelation, we need to understand really how it engages with the Old Testament. Wait a second. You mean to tell me I need to read my Bible even more? Yes. <laughs> yes, you do. In fact, I'm convinced, and some of you who've taken class with me have heard this, I'm convinced that the way we can, the best way we can better understand our New Testament is to read and reread and reread the Old Testament. And that's even more the case here with Revelation. Now, some of you math folks out there, I'm not a math person, but here's some stats for you. Some scholars have suggested that 70% of all of the verses in the book of Revelation contain references to the Old Testament. And some have even added some of these up and said that there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And if we do that same sort of calculation in all of Paul's letters, we get not even half of that. And by the way, Paul's letters as a whole are about 70% longer than the book of Revelation. It just shows you how saturated Revelation is in Old Testament imagery. And yet, there's not a single formal quotation from the Old Testament in the whole book. There's no place where, where our author, or where Jesus for that matter, lets us know as it is written in Isaiah, dot, dot, dot. No, so we're kind of left to try to figure out and sift through, well, where is it talking about the Old Testament, and where is it drawing its imagery from in the Old Testament, and is it at all even doing that here? And so that can become very tricky. But let me draw out an analogy for you in terms of the importance of this. If 70% of the scenes in The Empire Strikes Back were actually alluding back to the original Star Wars movie, you had better watch the original Star Wars movie before you watch the second one, or you're not going to get at all what's going on in it. Now, to use an image from your generation, if 70% of the scenes in Catching Fire alluded back to the original Hunger Games, you better watch part one before going into the sequel. And that's kind of what we're seeing here with Revelation. Trying to read Revelation without understanding the Old Testament should give you the feeling or the sense of disorientation like when you jump into the sequel of a movie whose previous film you had never seen. The worst thing, though, that can happen to you is for you to jump into the film that's a sequel, have no idea that's a sequel, think that you're understanding it quite well without even realizing that much of what you think about it is actually completely bonkers. So we need to know kind of what we're getting into with Revelation. It's a great reminder to us that Revelation is not a standalone book in and of itself, that it actually stands in continuity with a story that came long, long before it. And so the best thing that we can do to decode some of these wild images in Revelation is to know your scriptures and read the Old Testament. So my challenge for you here in my first point is that the next generation needs to embrace the imaginative portraits that are offered by Revelation towards offering unique artistic expressions of the scriptures in a way that the standard academic expositions and even some of the former popular uh, presentations of it just simply can't and won't do. But when you do so, you need to do so, I think, with an informed imagination. All right, to my second point. 
Why does the next generation, why does your generation need the book of Revelation? I believe the book of Revelation provides a strong message for a church under trial. Now you may say, well, what does that have anything to do with us? We'll get there. But before we get there, I need to say some things about the context of Revelation so that we can then kind of make the leap that we need to make in order to talk about our context and what in the world this idea of a church under trial has to do with us. The occasion for why Revelation was written is quite clear right there in the beginning of the book. And if you have your Bibles, you can look at verse 10 of chapter 1, where John lets us know that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day on the island of Patmos. Now, you probably don't know where that is, but it's short, you know, not too far off the coast of Ephesus, pretty much. But it's John's reason for being on the island that is so striking to us. And if we read a verse earlier, in verse 9, he says he's there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But unless we misunderstand what he's saying here, he's, I don't think he's saying that he's on a missionary journey. Because if we keep reading there in, in, in verse 9, it says, Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's John's self-identification. He's a brother and a partner in the suffering and patient endurance. It's pretty clear here, and the early church authors after the time of the New Testament see it this way, that John isn't just there to preach the word of God. He's there because he's being persecuted for it and maybe even in exile. But the thing about Revelation is if we keep reading, we go all the way into those letters in chapter 2 and 3, we'll find out that it's not just John that seems to be persecuted here, that the churches too are suffering persecution. Now, a lot of scholars have done stuff to try to paint out the extent to that persecution, and I don't think that's entirely relevant to what we're getting at here. But we know there's persecution, and we know that almost all of them must have been facing pressures to abandon their witness within their varied cultural frameworks. So it's a pretty well-accepted key, or, or backdrop, sorry, that it's a key to understanding Revelation uh, that is understanding that it's, it's written to people in persecution and trials. But let's be careful, because I think it's here where we can begin to start to celebrate some of the violent imagery in Revelation in ways that are very unhealthy. A little while back, Relevant Magazine had a panel of pastors, and they asked those pastors to address the question of what they saw the biggest challenge to Christianity was in the next 10 years. One of the panelists stated, and I quote, there's a strong drift towards the hard theological left. Some emergent types want to recast Jesus as a limp-wrist hippie in a dress with a lot of product in his hair who drank decaf and made pithy Zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. In Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy that I can beat up. End quote. Now, the panelist here seems to come from the assumption that many Christians have that Revelation is really a portrait of Jesus jumping into the octagon on our behalf and kicking some serious butt. So Jesus is thought of here as sort of the, a UFC fighter, for those of you who don't know the octagon reference. And I think now back to a shirt that I wore in high school, and the shirt on the front said, The Lord's Gym, G-Y-M. And it had a picture of a muscle-bound, shirtless Jesus doing push-ups with a massive, heavy cross on his back. 
And I thought in many ways I, I can sympathize with that. And that's appealing and that's comforting, especially it's comforting for people who are helpless in the presence of their enemies. And of course, there are certainly problems with the portrait of a Jesus that is a weak, limp-wrist hippie. But it's no wonder then that the philosopher Nietzsche called Revelation the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all of human history. If we don't tend to this carefully, we might believe that it's actually Revelation's portrait of Jesus that is largely to blame for this. But let me give you a fact. One image seems to dominate the portrait of Jesus in Revelation, and that is of Jesus as a lamb. Now, we need to remember this. This is imagery here. Jesus is not actually a lamb. And those of you who took my Gospel of John class will probably remember a story of my encounter at the first Chronicles of Narnia film. I was viewing the first Chronicles of Narnia film, and I saw a woman and her what seemed to be about four-year-old daughter sitting right in front of me, and right when Aslan appeared on the screen for the first time, she bent down and, and whispered to her daughter, that's Jesus. And I thought to myself, well, this poor four-year-old girl is going to grow up thinking that Jesus is actually a lion. I'm not quite sure that she caught what metaphors are. Now, we know better, right? We know better. Uh, metaphors are powerful images that say things in ways that we can't say otherwise. Imagine for a minute, though, that we don't live now, that we live back in the first century, we're sitting around that first century campfire. We're here in Revelation for the first time. I, I, I'd go as far to say that that image of the lamb would conjure up very specific images in our minds, much in the same way as if I were to say to you, big bird. Now, when I say to you, big bird, my guess is you're not thinking, oh, some general large flying creature. You're thinking of a tall, yellow, long-beaked individual from Sesame Street. And I can get away with that because most of us have a shared cultural environment where big bird makes sense to us. And the minute I say it, it's, it's bringing up an image in your mind. What I'm suggesting is the same thing goes here with this lamb. This isn't just a lamb. This isn't just some helpless or cuddly cute Jesus. This is the lamb of God. And if you recall in the beginning of John 1, John the Baptist proclaims Jesus to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if we're sitting around that campfire and we're hearing the image of the lamb, I think we would immediately think of two things. Number one, the sacrificial lamb at the Passover. Remember, it helped our people avoid the last plague in the Exodus event. Secondly, the spotless lamb, the one that's offered on behalf of our atonement on the day, on the day of atonement, the one that represented the atonement offered to us for our sins. But the one thing you know about the lamb is the lamb has a very vivid destiny. The lamb's going to die. Thanks, by the way, John the Baptist, for ruining the end of John's gospel for us by identifying Jesus this way at the very first chapter of the gospel. Not exactly a cliffhanger. Now, John did it, not John the Baptist, but you get the gist. Now, the first place that we encounter the lamb in Revelation is, is chapter 5, verse 6, and it's interesting that it says it's a lamb as though it was slain. Now, we have to remember that the, part of the reason why I think Jesus' contemporaries rejected him is because he didn't at all fit the notion of this sort of sword-wielding Messiah that they thought that the scriptures had actually foretold. Jesus was very different than that, and I think we've done a good job of acknowledging that he was very different than that. He subverted our messianic expectations. And now think of how the disciples felt when he washed their feet, right? That kind of does some of that. But are we to really believe that it's that different this time around? Jesus, the Lamb of God in his first coming, but now Jesus, the prize fighter in his second coming, right? Let me be clear. I think... 
the lamb stands here still in strong antithesis to the portrait of that prize fighting Jesus that some of us have in our imaginations from Revelation. Because even when the lamb isn't a victim in Revelation, when he's the victor, and by the way, the first time we encounter the image of the lamb there in Revelation 5, 6 is also with him being called the lion from the tribe of Judah, the only place in the whole New Testament where we get that term used. And lest we forget, that term is coming likely from the description of Judah from Jacob at the end of Genesis and not necessarily conjuring up all of the images of lion that we have in our cultural environment. But keep in mind that even when the lion and lamb are paired in Revelation chapter 5, his means of victory is very, very different than the typical prize fighter Jesus that we think of. As many commentators have pointed out, the lamb is temporarily placed to the side for a bit at the end of Revelation where we get in chapter 19 the picture of the rider riding on the white horse. But what's a little bit displacing to us is the rider shows up with an already blood-soaked robe before any battle. His robe isn't soaked in blood because he is obliterating people. His robe is pre-soaked in blood. Remember, he's the slain lamb. Any defeat that he delivers there, by the way, he defeats with a sword that does not come from his hand, but a sword that comes from his mouth, which is undoubtedly pointing to the fact that it was Jesus' words that bring ultimate defeat and not some sort of actual violence. Here he is in Revelation still subverting our notions on what it means to be king or what we think it means to be king. But let me be transparent here as we get closer to closing. There are violent images in Revelation and there are violent images associated with the lamb. Let's go to chapter 6. And we see the lamb is the only one who has the ability to open the scroll. And he pulls back the seal. And as he does so, we get some terrifying and violent images that permeate all the descriptions that follow. So there is violence there. But what's interesting to me is that the connection made between the slain lamb and between the community of the lamb or the witnesses of the lamb throughout Revelation, are that many of them are slain as well because of their testimony. The dominant theme of God's people in Revelation is that of faithful witness in the midst of their trials, not one of warrior. Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 19, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so we shouldn't avenge ourselves, but we should really leave it up to God. And the sentiment, I think, is quite paralleled here in Revelation as well. The sword is not a sword that he yields with his hand or wields with his hand. It's one that he brings from his mouth, namely the sword of words, not one of steel. We can recall Jesus' words to Peter to put away the sword here. So let me wrap up. How in the world does any of this have anything to do with why your generation needs the book of Revelation? Many of you, I think, are growing up in the post-9-11 generation, you were born, what, shortly before 9-11, right? Most of you? My, my math is off here, maybe. I don't know. But the word terrorist now, I think, carries for you symbolic connotations that it did not have for my generation. When I thought of terrorists growing up, I thought of Russians, like in the movie Air Force One. Or I thought of Libyans, like in Back to the Future. You might recall Doc Brown's words uh, from Back to the Future. They find me. They found me. I don't know how, but they found me. I mean, famous words, right, of the, of the Libyan terrorists. But you grow up with much different connotations, and you hear about terrorism every single day on the news. So I'm guessing that questions for you of justice take on a specific meaning 
for you globally. And the question of where we place our hope for justice and where we place our hope for peace and what can we say at all about what God's doing theologically or what can we say theologically about what God is going to do in the presence of wickedness and the presence of wicked movements and regimes. And you can add in whatever wicked regime you think here, whether it's ISIS or whether it's uh, Al-Qaeda or whether it's the LRA or Boko Haram. It doesn't matter. But what does matter is that I know many of us probably have the intuition that we're absolutely appalled by what they're doing, and we should be. And in many ways, you probably want to cry out along with Psalm 137 that really cries for vengeance, calls, cries to God for vengeance for what they've done. Globalization, I think, and the internet has really opened our eyes up to injustice on a global scale like it hadn't before. And I think your generation, your generation certainly cannot think of a narrow view of justice that really only thinks of justice as justice for me and my own, especially in light of the fact that we now have access to information on what's happening in the global church in a way that no other generation has had. So here's my final words. Why do you need revelation? Why do you need revelation when it comes to reflecting on the concept of justice right now? Why do you need revelation when reflecting on who we are to be in the church in the midst of fears and threats and insecurity? Well, we live in an age, I think, where violence against one's enemies seems to be really the only way to maintain safety and security in our way of living. And in spite of the violent images in Revelation, we need to be reminded that nowhere does it suggest in the book of Revelation that God's people are to take up arms. Now, God's justice and God's vindication are absolutely crucial to the book, but commentators, I think, have rightfully noted that the central image of God's people in Revelation is one of witness and not one of warrior. This stands in stark contrast to a recent suggestion coming from the president of one of the largest Christian universities, sorry, the largest Christian university in our country. And if you haven't kept up with the news, I think his suggestions really amount to a call to arms where uh, all of the Christian students there are supposedly to take complementary carry and conceal classes offered by the school so that they can, and I quote, end those Muslims before they walk in and kill, end quote. This sentiment to me seems maybe a little more motivated by American cultural sentiment or worse, uh, maybe from the idea of the church sort of acting like the prize fighter Jesus here who uh, is very different than the lamb who is slain, who comes with the sword of his words, not with the sword of steel, and who actually encourages the church towards faithful witness in the midst of their tribulations. So let me be clear, I think. I'm not advocating against conceal and carry here. Um, I can sympathize with the desire, right, to uh, defend oneself against atrocities, whether they're personal, whether they're corporate. And I assume that all would likely applaud anyone who would stop a would-be terrorist or gunman from carrying out their acts. On the other hand, I think the sentiment that's expressed in the previous quote really cannot become the dominant motivating paradigm for God's people. That's, I think, the key, especially if it's driven by fear-based responses. We're instead to be faithful witnesses, maintain our faithful witness instead of becoming warriors in a sort of crusade-like fashion. So, Last thing, very last thing I'm going to say here, and I know we're, out of, we're really, really getting close to out of time. We're being faced with some questions on what the church is to do globally when we're confronted with whether to welcome 
or to resist outsiders or people we deem as outsiders, especially those who may actually feel threatening or may threaten the safety of our own lives. Now, this situation really honestly may only be loosely parallel to that of the situation in Revelation, and I know that we cannot proceed here with some sort of blind naivete. But Jesus has passed on the torch to us, the, the torch of his ministry. And when pressed in from outside, I think it's easy throughout all of church history to lose sight of that witness that we're to maintain. Without simplifying these issues, I think more than I have, my hope is that you and the next generation will be faithful witnesses and that the faithful witness component will really be at the forefront of your minds, even if we find ourselves feeling more unsafe, more insecure, and more threatened than we do now. Jesus himself and his ministry often crossed difficult social boundaries and put himself in harm's way, unsafe situations in order to carry out the business of his father. What is the business of his father? Life. Namely, to us sinners who were, for all intents and purpose, enemies of God. So, let us too, in the presence of fear, carry the torch of Jesus' ministry boldly, maintaining faithful witness to the Lamb who was slain, committed to never withdraw from those to whom Jesus would draw near. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity this morning. Would you excite us? Would you energize us with what Revelation has to offer this generation, myself included, Lord? And would you help us to be faithful to interpreting it well, to understanding it well? Would you help us to read our Bibles better so that we can grasp some of the wild imagery that it has to say to us in order to really make that come alive in our own culture? We thank you, Lord, and I ask this in your name. Amen.